When we made our new McDonald's spicy chicken McNuggets, you were praise hands emoji. Then we ran out, and you were streaming tears emoji. Now they're back, so you can be grinning face with sweat emoji. Order ahead on the McDonald's app. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For a limited time at participating McDonald's. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Kaiju Curry House. This will be a very special episode today with just myself recording. My name is Alex and I am joined today by Matthew Meyer, the yokai guy who's recording over in Japan. Hello, Matthew. Hi there. How are you doing over there? It's wonderful. How are you doing? I'm splendid. I'm over in a town called Chesley Street, which is in the northeast of England, visiting some family, got all my gear together, and I thought, right, now is a good time to Skype. What time is it over there with you? It's uh, 7.30 in the evening, so not a bad time to be talking. Okay, that's a nice time of day. Okay, well, it's um, it's a lovely day. It's sunny here, but it's been pretty muggy. It's due another rain, I think. Mm. The idea of the podcast today, it's been kind of a brainchild of mine for a bit since I started Kaiju Curry House with Paul and Joe back in January when we started recording. I really wanted to explore the links between between yokai, which um, you're an expert on, and kaiju, which me and my friends are novices, but uh, very much sort of uh, fanatical about. And I wanted to see what links there are, bet- um, because as far as our listeners are concerned, they're just two random Japanese words. Um, I understand kaiju to be strange beasts. Now, am I right, Matthew, that you're fluent in Japanese? Yes. Yep. So this is where you can correct me. What is the actual... Uh, translation of the word kaiju yeah strange beast is is spot on and what do you understand strange beasts to be in a japanese context well so the the kai and kaiju is the same kai and yokai and sort of it it's like this uh mysterious wondrous or bizarre sense so uh i guess the closest english equivalent to kaiju would be cryptid okay uh, but uh, when you're talking specifically about kaiju, you've also got the the movie culture that is so ingrained with the word kaiju. So I think it's hard to say kaiju without thinking of giant rubber suit monsters. Mm. So uh, I think even though maybe just the word alone could probably have the same uh, definition as, as say, cryptid or, or, or something like that. But I think uh, if we're going to be using the Japanese word, it makes sense to take it in the Japanese context as well. So talking about specifically giant pop culture movie monster kind of creatures. Giant pop culture movie monsters. I like that. And what is a yokai? The yokai is a pretty vague term at its base level. Uh, 
it means strange and mysterious thing. Uh, so it can be anything from a ghost to a goblin to a strange fireball or a mysterious sound. It's not necessarily a creature, but it's often used uh, to be a synonym or a, another word that describes folkloric Japanese monsters. So at, at its broadest term, you know, everything that's a fantasy creature could be a kai or a, a, a yokai. So, you know, yeah. Dracula could be a yokai or fairies could be yokai. But I think it it sort of pays to take it, uh, you know, in the Japanese sense as a creature or phenomenon from Japanese folklore. So even though the word itself has a broad definition, I would tend to exclude English folklore or American folklore or, or something just to keep it in the context of the Japanese word. So you apply a geographical remit to that? Yeah, although, you know, it's not a, a hard stop for me. I think it depends on the context I'm speaking in. That makes sense. Um, it was interesting that you were saying, you know, anything strange. So yokai, to me, from your description, it sounds like it's an all-encompassing term. That it is. Kaiju yeah. could fall under that umbrella? Certainly. Um, I think... You know, if you're taking the broad definition of yokai, kaiju definitely falls under it. The one area where I would tend to sort of put a soft barrier is that kaiju are pop culture things, and they're they're particularly like media, and and they, and they fall under copyright. Whereas yokai are folkloric, so they fall under public domain. Mm. So while you can say that you know Toho owns Godzilla, uh, nobody owns yokai. Or, or rather, everybody owns yokai because they're they're folklore. So, I think that's probably the key difference I would place between yokai and kaiju, and perhaps the wall that I would put between them. Yeah. So, in the same way, in European folklore, no one owns the copyright to elves. Sure. Because because it's just it's generic. You know. Right. But but Legolas himself would be a uh, yeah because yeah. that that's a property that's that's an idea specific right okay that makes yes. sense. Um, telling us a little bit about yourself, where when did you first start kind of researching yokai specifically? Well, I've always been interested in folklore and particularly horror folklore uh, ever since I was little. So uh, when I came to Japan, it was sort of natural for me to take a look at what what folklore was available here, what what the local stories were. So uh, looking into that, there really t wasn't too much in the English language. There's a lot of Japanese material. Uh, I mean, Japan is rich with folklore, and you know people here love their ghost stories and their monster stories, but you don't really see much in English. I think everyone's familiar with uh, The Ring and The Grudge and, and a couple of modern horror movies, and... Maybe they even know the um, 1970s or 60s movie Kwaidan. And I think a few people, or everybody knows a few stories, like they know what Kappa are and they know what Tanuki are, uh, because they've crossed over into pop culture here and there. But I think uh, outside of that, there's not too much about Japanese folklore that is available in the English language. Actually, I'm going to admit ignorance. What was the name of the film you mentioned from the 70s? Because I'd never heard uh, of it. It's called Kwaidan. K-W-A-I-D-A-N. And what's it about? It's a collection of Japanese ghost stories or horror stories. Uh, traditional ones, very old ones. But it's done in a very um, 
theater-esque i guess like very mm-hmm. it, it almost looks like a stage production but it's it's a movie uh and it's got fantastic color and lighting and it's it's very artistic but uh not artistic in the sense that it's hard to you know it's it's inaccessible it's very accessible as well excellent um what's the early <clears throat> excuse me what's the earliest use of the word yokai that you're aware of uh, the earliest use is very, very old. Um, I think the word words like yokai and mononoke appeared a thousand years ago in Japanese literature to describe supernatural creatures, but it really wasn't a common term until I think the uh, either the late nineteenth or early twentieth century. There was a folklorist named Inoue Enryo. He was sort of a the father of what's called yokai studies. Mm-hmm sort of the father of the field of studying Japanese folklore. And so he took this old word and he repopularized it, uh, yokai, and he used it to describe all of the supernatural creatures. Uh, so, you know, if you were talking to people a couple hundred years ago and said yokai, they might not know what you were talking about. But today that is generally the accepted word to talk about uh, folkloric spirits and things. Mm-hmm. And... What was the, I suppose, what was the pathway for the West into yokai culture? Where have we accessed it so that it's come more into mainstream awareness? Probably the biggest uh, entryway would be from a uh, an American. I think he was an American, um, a Greek American author whose name is Lafcadio Hearn, mm-hmm. uh, and he. I think probably a lot of people have heard his stories, especially Yuki Ona, the snow woman. Uh, he came over here uh, in the early 20th century and uh, he married a Japanese woman. He was a teacher here and he recorded a lot of the stories that his wife told him and that he heard from the locals around his village, uh, recorded them in English and published them back in the U.S. and internationally. And that was sort of, I think, the first taste of Japanese folklore that the West got. And there have been a few other books of uh, classical Japanese stories and fairy tales that are usually told through a Western lens. So they, you know, they translate the animals' names into English uh, and they tell it very much in like a Grimm's fairy tale type of story. They try to put a moral on the end. So uh, I don't know how authentic those can really be considered, but uh, between Lafcadio Hearn and a few other early authors, uh, there's a small body of old works on Japanese folklore. But uh, up until recently, there hasn't been much else. And nowadays, there's sort of a yokai renaissance or yokai boom going on. And there are a number of authors putting out uh, academic and entertainment-based uh, works on yokai these days. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples of that, please, just for our listeners, if they're interested? Well, uh, there's, I think, one of the best-known uh, academic writers on the subject would be Michael Dylan Foster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in California. I, f- I think the University of... I'm going to get it wrong, so I won't say. It's okay. No, it's uh, okay. So he's a university professor, and he's written, uh, he's written one or two or three books on yokai uh, with an academic, but also a, sort of an accessible reach to them. Uh, very interesting and and uh thorough looks at yokai and uh analysis of them as well which is quite interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, a number of old works have been translated for example um 
the Legends of Tono is is a very famous old Japanese book, uh, which has been translated in English, and that's available these days. Um, you know, there's obviously myself with with yokai.com and my books. Other all um, other authors like Zach Davison, Matt Alt. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read Zach. I, like, I yeah. liked his work. It's good. Yeah, Zach and Matt both have really good works. Uh, I think we all sort of touch different audiences. Yes. Uh, so there's there's overlap in material, but not really overlap in or not really competition. I say. I think we all support each other, and we're all very yeah. uh, happy to have additional people out there spreading the the word of yokai, so yes. to speak. And there's distinct differences, isn't there? Am, am I right that Zach was the author who did uh, Yurei, the the ghost? Um... Yeah, Zach did um his his Yurei book, and he also did his Kaibyo, his his book about cats recently. All right, okay, that's interesting. So, um, what, what's the link between yokai and cats, if if any link? Well, there are a number of yokai cats, uh, cats okay. who are yokai. So they, um, you know, cats are obviously an animal that's very close to humans. Uh, uh, and they also act in strange ways. I think every culture in the world is, you know, they have their stories about cats behaving strangely. Yeah. Uh, and so Japan is no stranger to that. And there's lots of stories about these uh, kaibyo or, or strange cats. Mm-hmm. And they will uh, manipulate humans, sort of uh, puppet them with, with black magic they can transform into humans. They they sometimes eat their masters and then change into their masters' bodies and, and masquerade as them. So That's cool. there's all sorts of horror stories about these strange cats. I read somewhere that um, cats were once revered as gods by the Egyptians and they've never let humans forget it. <laughs> I think I've heard that as well, yeah. yeah. Um, what I was thinking before the break was... Um, could you give us some key examples of y- yokai? Possibly the most famous ones that come to mind. Now, obviously, you've been documenting in excess of a few hundred now. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I'm getting close so, to 400 entries on yokai.com. Okay. And um, yeah, so... Well, let's start hard... with yokai.com. I'll, I'll backtrack. Let's start with sure. that. So what's the purpose of yokai.com? Well, like I said, when I came here... Uh, I became interested in the folklore and I was kind of sad that there were not really any resources in English. Um, you know, again, aside from Lafcadio Hearn and other authors who were almost a hundred or over a hundred years old, uh, there was very little on the subject in English. And I thought, well, this is something that I'm really interested in. Surely other people are interested in this. Mm-hmm. So I started um, you know, collecting the stories and translating them and posting them on my blog where I would write a story or or a description of a yokai if there wasn't a story to go with it and an illustration is that matthewmeyer.net yes yeah yeah i know that was this was before i owned yokai.com so it it began with matthewmeyer.net and it was sort of my art blog and i I, where i talked a little bit about life in japan Mm -hmm. and i started a project called a yokai a day where i did uh for the month of october sort of as a halloween celebration uh i would do one yokai and one illustration every single day um and that was a lot more popular than i expected it to be and uh really brought a lot of new viewers to my blog and i did it again the next year and the next year and um 
it wasn't long before people were emailing me with questions about yokai and oh i've heard about this but i, I can't find any information on it can you describe it to me or they would send me an image that they found on google and say what is this thing can you explain it to me and uh people were saying well you should turn a yokai a day into a book so after enough voices like that kept coming to me i realized yeah, i probably should because there just isn't that much uh, material out there in english but there's a big demand for it so i decided to make my first book the night parade of 100 demons and after that i did a second book a few years later uh, because the first one was very popular and, I, and when i finished the second book i began yokai.com uh, it was right around that time that i figured well i've got these two books and people are asking me questions and I, you know, I can either spend all my time writing emails to people or referring them to my books, but I could also just, why not put up a, a website for this? A lot mm. of people would look at Wikipedia um, and other places, you know, blogs and, and MatthewMeyer.net was available with a lot of yokai, but obviously MatthewMeyer.net does not really have a good... Uh, name ring for no. uh for the yokai it's, not, it's not going to reach people to the same level as yokai.com yeah exactly it? i mean that's that's my name but it's not it's not exactly the same thing so i'm uh, trying to think back to when yokai.com started i'm fairly certain it was shortly after i got in touch with you initially because i'd got your first book and i'd asked about getting involved with the patreon for the second one he said well actually alex it's closed and then i kind of waited around for it to be released and i think there was some discussion about kind of having an ongoing Patreon to sort of maintain yokai.com. Have I got that right? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think it, it was around 2014. 20... Yeah, okay. So my daughter was born that time. Yeah, that, that, that rings a bell. Okay, so um, how has yokai.com gone for you in terms of serving its purpose? Uh, I think it's doing a pretty good job. Um, I you know I I keep an eye on the stats and everything and and they're just constantly going up and I I see a lot of people Great. mentioning yokai.com and I guess you know it, it's always been a fun project for me but I didn't realize how much reach it was until I came back to Japan and uh I went to a festival and people recognized me and they said oh you're Matt Meyer from yokai.com and That's I was great. I was shocked that, you know, people over here who I'd never met before had heard of me and they knew my website. So, uh, I mean, that was a good feeling. And I, mm. I think a lot of people are really getting to know yokai.com before they know me. Whereas previously it was, they came to MatthewMeyer.net and they, yes. they knew who I was. And then they also saw that I was doing yokai. So mm. it's kind of nice to see that yokai.com has got sort of a life of its own now. And at what rate, um, are you getting yokai out there in terms of documentation? Uh, I try to do between um, two to five per month. It really depends on uh, both the the complexity of the individual yokai that I'm doing, and um, well, and and the illustrations as well, of course. Okay. So uh, tell some... our listeners. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go on, carry on. Oh well, I was saying that um, some yokai are basically one sentence long. I mean. Yes. They really don't have much backstory at all. So when when I get a bunch of those, I can do a number of them per month. And mm -hmm. then others, you can analyze them and analyze them and fill up paragraphs or pages of a book with them. So they end up yeah. taking up half a month to translate and then illustrate. 
Do you remember that uh, water spraying yokai that I yeah the shield to do yep. yeah because um I've, I've still got that on my wall and it looks great <laughs> but I was thinking in terms of the information about that maybe two sentences at most yep yeah and, just... and I always look really hard for mm. more information on them and sometimes that can take weeks of research looking through old books and and trying to trace the source of these creatures mm. but uh, sometimes it really just comes down to some guy in the 1600s drew a doodle. And that's really yeah. it. It's, I suppose it's as much being a, a historian, isn't it? Because you're, you're looking back and you're having to make inferences and decide, look, is there actually something going on here? Or was it just a guy doing a doodle while on the toilet? You know, is, is it yeah, important exactly. for us to know about? Or, you know. Yeah, the history really definitely comes into it. And, and mm. history is a passion of mine, but I'm not, I'm not a professional historian or anything. My, you know, I'm, my studies were all in art. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I've always been a big history buff. So when you're researching yokai, you're inevitably researching both the the country's history, the culture, and also mm-hmm. the history of the language. So it really all is interconnected. I mean, I'm sure anyone who studied art history will will agree that you know you study even the the prehistoric statues all the way up through modern art. The history of art tells the history of humanity. And it's no yes. different with, uh, with with folklore and with, with Japanese yokai is that yokai history are so deeply intertwined with Japanese history that you can't study one without the other. It must be quite exciting to get a snapshot of what was going on at the time to kind of see how this yokai might have been representative of the fears or the mm-hmm. ideas that kind of were, you know, that were popular, that were commonplace. Yeah, you can definitely see slices of, you know, the zeitgeist of the times. Like, yeah. You realize this one period, you have a number of, of disease-based yokai who all tell prophecies. And then you look at the history, and that's right around the time where there were these global cholera epidemics. And people wow. in Japan were terrified of them. You know, People around the world were terrified of them. But, but in Japan, you had this very closed-off country who was getting news in of these cholera epidemics in China and Indonesia and in Europe. And they really were afraid of them coming here. And so you have all of these yokai who come out of the sea and tell you that for the next seven years, there's going to be, you know, a good harvest. And then after that, there's going to be a plague. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's just such an, a mirror of what people's fears were of the time. What a fantastic note to take a break on. We are going to return in a moment, guys. And I was hoping, Matthew, if you could tell us a yokai story. Could you do that? Sure. I'm putting you on the spot. Okay, we're back in a moment, guys. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Greg from Red Shirts and Runabouts. We're the resident Star Trek podcast as part of the Heroes Podcast Network group. If you love Star Trek and things science fiction, we're definitely the show for you. Join us as we talk about Star Trek Discovery, the new Picard show, and other ongoing content and new creations from the Star Trek universe. If you want to find us, search Red Shirts and Runabouts podcast on Apple and Google Play. And if you want to interact with us as a host, you can find us at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter. And welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. This special episode is myself, Alex, and I'm speaking with Matthew Meyer, the yokai guy. Matthew is about to do a description of some classic yokai that he's picked out for especially, so I'm going to sit back and enjoy this. So uh, I've picked out a few yokai that I think fit in pretty well with uh, with the kaiju world. And so remember, this is, if we're going to draw a line between yokai and kaiju, I think it's definitely the difference between cinema and folktales. So uh, 
I wouldn't go so far as to say that these uh, that, that kaiju were directly inspired by these yokai, but I think there's a lot of parallels between their stories and the stories we see in kaiju. So the the first one I would talk about is Tsuchigumo, and this is a giant spider. And this is a very, very old and very, very classic Japanese myth about a giant spider who comes out of the wilderness and attacks people. And a brave warrior has to go and slay this spider. Uh, some of the oldest Japanese folk tales have uh, are stories about these tsuchigumo. So, one of Japan's most famous warriors, whose name is Raiko, uh, also known as Minamoto no Yorimitsu, he's sort of like the uh, the legendary samurai who has been involved with so many different legends and and. Uh, almost like dragon-slaying tales. Uh, and a lot of his stories are about him going out and slaying uh, giant spiders or other yokai. So in one of his stories, he uh, he's going out looking for a giant spider which has been terrorizing the countryside. And uh, he gets attacked by thugs. And while he's resting in, a, in an inn... He's being treated by a young servant who's giving him medicine, but it's actually spider venom. Uh, so his wounds are not healing and the medicine doesn't seem to be working. So uh, as he's getting weaker, Raiko begins to suspect that he's actually being tricked by the spider. So next time the boy comes to give him medicine, he pulls out his sword and slashes at him. And the boy runs away into the forest and uh, Raiko chases after him, and it turns out that the uh, uh, when when Raiko gets up, he's been covered in spider webs, and and he was sort of uh, under an illusion or under a spell of the spider, and he's sitting in this dilapidated old hut with spider webs and bones everywhere. So he runs off after the boy, following a, the trail of blood into the mountains, and they discover the giant Tsuchigumo. Uh, which has been wounded by his previous sword slash. Uh, so that's one of his... Uh, well, there's a there's a bunch of different versions of the story, but the general story is that he uh, he, he goes and he slays it and he brings mm. the head home, that, that sort of thing. I was going to say, the interesting part of that for me was sort of realizing that he's in a dilapidated house. Just yeah. because that's quite sort of a classic trope in multiple cultures. Mm-hmm. The sort of the you know, the illusion about it being you know a cottage or a you know somewhere quite safe, and actually it's a dilapidated house. It's dangerous, and the bones in the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another version where um, Raiko chases a, a Tsuchigumo up into the mountains, and he he finds the giant spider, and then he slashes it with his sword and splits it open, and then thousands of spiders the size of human babies just swarm out of the 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 belly of the spider all over the place and he and his warriors have to hunt down each of these human-sized spider babies that's that's nightmare fuel isn't it it's a pretty horrific image it really is that one that one reminds me of um kumonga one of oh yeah uh, Um... i forget which movie he was in but yeah the the giant spider uh i'm gonna say 
when is it it's like it's one of the early ones like the 60s 19, ones yeah yeah 1965 kind of era but it's um son of godzilla yes yeah i think because it, it's where it's on the, the island son, yeah. son of godzilla because you got you got little minya making the little noises and godzilla's training his son to kind of do atomic breath you're right that's the one it was you got the kamakuras which are the the praying mantises attack yep and they're pretty shoddy, to be honest. But actually, when the Kamonga, <laughs> the giant spider attacks, it's just these, these legs, individual legs kind of crash down to the cave. And it's quite nice for its time. It's yeah. a very camp film, though. Yeah, oh, it is very much. And so I would say that while I don't, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say that um, that story was inspired by these ancient Tsuchigumo stories. But I would say that the the same tradition of, you know, the idea of the giant monster is, is present in both these ancient folktales and in of course uh mini godzilla <laughs> yeah dreadful dreadful film yep <laughs> hey, go on um a second story please so another interesting character is um you know in some of the later godzilla movies godzilla becomes sort of a uh, a divine hero almost you know mm. he he's protecting the earth and he's he's almost a savior even though he's this horrific monster and we can see that parallel in old yokai stories as well. There's a type of creature called a shinchu, which means holy insect. Mm. And uh, this is depicted in a number of really old scroll stories. And it's basically this giant, uh, like a rhinoceros beetle type of creature with eight legs. Uh, and it's the size of an elephant. And they show it rampaging through the area and it's ripping people up, blood pouring from its mouth, uh, you know, blood all over the place. And But when you look at it more closely, it's not humans that it's ripping up, it's it's demons. Mm. And when you look at the story on, on the side of this, it it's talking about this this divine insect, this Shinchu, that is uh, protecting people from uh, the, de- the demons represent disease poverty famine evil spirits that sort of thing so this horrific disgusting monster that looks like it would be destroying cities is actually protecting people yeah and i think there's a there's definitely you see that parallel in in a lot of the kaiju movies where even though these are horrible monsters that have the power to rampage and destroy you know level city blocks sometimes they're actually protecting people mm. And again, I don't know that there's a conscious connection between these stories and, you know, the the savior Godzilla trope. But uh, I think there's more of a, you know, it's a cultural echo that is present in both of them, maybe subconsciously. I was just thinking about the links there that um, in quite a few different cultures, you do get sort of the the wrathful deity. Um, Mm. I know that in Tibetan Buddhism, you have um, specific sort of um what's the word for it i suppose manifestations of mm. uh, of buddhas that are specifically dedicated to killing nightmares and sort of killing yep. depression that kind of thing and to people who don't kind of understand it they they do look terrifying there there's a, a deity that i had on on my wall growing up called uh, mahakala that my mum had got a picture mm-hmm. of me for because i was having really bad nightmares as a little boy and mahakala is this the 
gigantic, dark blue, um, sort of fat-bellied Buddha, and he's holding the <laughs> skulls of all his enemies, and people would come over and go, whoa, that's awesome, what's that? And I'd be like, oh, that's Mahakala, you know, he kills nightmares. Oh, you know, doesn't he kill you? <laughs> no, no, he's fine, he's sound, he's a good guy, you know, but he'll, he'll mess you up. Yeah, and, and those same, you know, they're present in Tibetan Buddhism, and of course they're also present in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism as well. So you see a lot of, um, you know, maybe their depictions are different and their names are yes. different, but they do share the same uh, ancient identity. So, very similar. Yeah, very, very lots, similar. Lots of um, commonalities there. I know that in your second book, what was the name of your second book called? Um, the Hour of Meeting Evil Spirits. That's a really cool name. I know <laughs> that in a few chapters, you've actually got a lot of uh, illustrations of what, to me, appeared as being gods specifically. Yeah, yeah, they're sort of wrathful gods, and they do look they do look Indian. Uh, they they come yes. from Indian folklore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's there's definitely kind of oh, I'm I'm bad on my on my Hindu gods. Um, who's who's the destroyer? What's her name? Is it is it Shiva? Shiva is one. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. There's definitely the look of her uh, in a couple of your illustrations. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and they you see that sort of look. Uh, in a lot of uh, Japanese gods and, and Japanese um, um, god-like creatures, mm. uh, demons as well. And if you visit big temples in Japan, a lot of time you'll see these statues of these creatures that look like massive demons. They're carrying whips and cudgels and swords, and they look mm. absolutely ferocious. And you know, they're they are kind of demons, but they're 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 also Buddhas and they're. Yes demon gods that go after evil creatures mm. so there's a really interesting sort of impression that these heavenly creatures are terrifying which you don't always get in western art you know we we have like beautiful angels and, and sweet cherubs and, and things like that but in asian art you do see a lot of uh the good guys are often the most horrific creatures you can imagine yes um so for this past term at my school, I've been teaching um, been teaching medieval life, and one of the things we've been focusing mm. on has been um, specifically doom paintings, they're called, uh, uh -huh. which were very popular around Western Europe um, during the Middle Ages. And the idea of doom paintings was basically to scare people into being good because the majority of the population would have been illiterate. Mm. They would have relied on depictions of hell to help people understand, look, this is how bad it is. And it wasn't a case of that the good guys are terrifying looking. No, no, God looks wonderful. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Pip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh, man. That's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Pip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh?
I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. He's, you know, a kindly person, but most of the paintings were about hell. You know, never mind yep. heaven. Don't think about heaven. You're probably going to go to hell if you carry on as you are. And it's all these um, sort of... Have you, have you seen the artwork by Hieronymus Bosch? Of course, yes. Yeah, no, he's a wonderful <laughs> artist, but terrifying, terrifying. Terrifying, absolutely, yeah. And um, again, you know, drawing links to your own art, um, there's that chapter that you take the readers through where going through what looks a bit like the circles of hell. That's kind of my yep, own Western exactly. understanding of it. And kind of you've got um, people being stood up for trial and then being chased by these gigantic bulls and then basically just being lined up and cut into little bits. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole genre of art here as well. Uh, just like you were discussing about uh, the Doom paintings, so mm. over here, Hell Scrolls are a common thing, and you know, just like you said, in the Middle Ages, these mm. were these were paint- commissioned and uh, yeah. displayed in temples, uh, yes. and they show you the story of a soul that goes to hell, and they're extremely graphic and and horrifying. Oh yeah, there's nothing left the imagination. So entertaining. Oh no, not at all. Yeah, um oh, modern day horrors have got nothing on these, you know. Yep. Um what would be the third uh, description that you could give us? So another uh very very kaiju like yokai is mm. this great sea serpent called Ikuchi. Mhm. And uh Ikuchi is it's essentially your your classic sea serpent. It's a it's a giant tentacle like or dragon like um almost monster eel that lives out in the in the ocean. Uh and this creature is I think uh by some measures they said he's three kilometers long. Uh some some people you know, some tales will, will give him even longer than that. And what he does is he will slide across the deck of a ship and just wrap over it and slide across slowly going over the entire ship and uh he doesn't sink the boat when he slides over it he's actually kind of graceful but his body is covered with this thick oil that just pours off of it and there's so much of it that uh the entire crew of the boat needs to start bailing oil uh, or else the the amount, the weight of the goo is going to cause their ship to capsize and since the creature is so long, it can even take days for it to to finish sliding across the, the deck of a ship. So you can imagine these poor sailors far from home who have to spend day and night not sleeping, not resting, just shoveling goo off their ship as the sea serpent slimes over them. It's a different kind of horror to just to see serpents sinking the ship, isn't it? Or yeah. swallowing it. But it's, it's a um, slow horror and, and oh. knowing that uh, if you don't do your best, you're going to be the sort of the architect of your own death. Yeah. One of my favorite yokai is that I've got actually in my bathroom, um, funnily enough. It's <laughs> the, I know it's a peculiar place to have one, but it's felt fitting. There's these huge um, shadowy sort of, floating things in the sea which I, again i'm probably gonna uh badly pronounce it is it umibozu the umibos uh, yeah umibos. umibos okay um could you describe them for our listeners yeah they're also very much uh kaiju like they are these mm. giant dark creatures their their name means sea monk and and the monk here is is taken because um you know monks would shave their heads bald 
and yeah. this creature just looks like a large, bald, black, shadowy humanoid, which rises up out of the sea like a monster, and uh, he will approach a boat, and he will demand a ladle. And if you don't have a ladle, he'll take a barrel. But basically, he, he demands a ladle, and then he starts shoveling water and into your boat. And that will slowly cause the boat to sink up and, or to fill up and then sink. Mm. So it's again, it's sort of like a uh, the slow doom. He, he's not going to rise up out of the sea and smash you. He rises up out of the sea and then torments you and uses your own barrels or ladles to sink your own ship. And the funny thing about him is that the the way sailors would say that they escaped from him was that they had a barrel or a ladle in their boat with a hole in the bottom. So he would be scooping and he wouldn't be scooping any water. He'd just keep scooping and they would have time to sail away while he's trying to cover them in water but failing. There's numerous yokai stories of people tricking them, isn't there? That kind of, there you can are, out, you yeah. Can outwit like the kappa having the... The sort of the dip in the head, and if you get them to bow to you, you know they can sort of lose their life force. Yeah, that's sort of the fun thing about yokai is that a lot of the time they they are maybe stronger than humans physically, but mentally they're not really any better than us. Not really much worse either, but uh, they're they're generally on par with humans mentally. So if you're smart enough or or clever, you can manage to escape using your wits. Just to finish off before we take our second break, um, Matthew hinted to me just before we recorded that he might have a news report specifically on a on a kaiju sighting. Can you go into a couple of details about that? Absolutely. So uh, this is one of the most kaiju-like, or this is probably the most kaiju-like yokai of all. There is a creature in... Uh, that appears in the newspapers in 1866 and you know we you know 1866 that's that's relatively modern as far as uh time goes you know at that point there were printing presses there's newspapers there's mass production i mean or mass production at least on a on a smaller scale but uh you know we've got big urban centers in japan so the newspapers were not printing uh, uh how to describe it i guess the the newspapers would be printing things much in the same way that newspaper oh sorry my parrots are screaming <laughs> no it's fine the newspapers were printing much in the same way that newspapers today print they would describe things scientifically and factually you know if they saw a large fish they would give you the size in in units, the weight in in measurable units, and describe what people did. So it it was very much like modern-day reporting. And so this story comes from Osaka in 1866, and it was really just printed in the newspaper with with an illustration alongside of it. And this is the story about, uh, they called it honengyo, which means... um, bountiful year fish or fruitful year fish uh honen is kind of like um year of plenty so uh particularly in the idea of prophecy so the people believed that this fish the sighting of this mysterious fish was a sign of good things to come so this honengyo 
they found dead. It, it had floated down the river from who knows where. Uh, and they described it as being about three meters long, uh, 70 kilograms. And they, it had uh, legs like a turtle. It had scales all over its body like a snake. Its body was very flexible like a weasel's. And their eyes shine like mirrors. And they have black spiked dorsal fins. And if you picture that in your mind, that's a pretty exact description of Godzilla. But on top of that, they included an illustration of this creature with it. And when you see this full-color woodblock print from 1866, and you see this illustration, you would swear that you were looking at a modern-day illustration of Godzilla done in sort of a, a woodblock print style. And it's just... This amazing coincidence that in 1866 they found this creature that looks exactly like Godzilla. They reported it, they they drew its illustration and published it in the newspaper, and then 90 years later, uh, the movie Godzilla comes out, and probably not at all linked or inspired by this sighting at all, but just a, a wonderful coincidence. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to take a break, now we'll return for the final part. Hey friends! This is Cam, one of the hosts of the Gamer Heroes podcast. We really hope you're enjoying the show you're listening to right now, and if you are, please consider becoming a patron of the Heroes Podcast Network at patreon.com slash heroespodcasts. Your support would genuinely mean the world to us, and would allow us to cover hosting costs for the website, get new equipment and software, and even make it out to different conventions and events to meet you, our loyal listeners. All Patreon tiers will get you access to the Patron Lounge and Slack, which will allow you to chat and interact with your favorite HPN hosts. On behalf of everyone here at HPN, thank you all so much for your continued support. We really couldn't do any of this without you. And welcome back for the final part of this episode for Kaiju Curry House. My name is Alex, and I've been discussing yokai with none other than Matthew Meyer, the yokai guy, who's live in Japan right now with me. So we've just been listening to the story, or rather news report, of what very much looks like Godzilla. I am going to get up a picture of that for you. What was the name of it? Hyonengo, did you say? Honengo. Honengo. Honengyo, I'm sorry. Honengyo. Honengyo. And uh, can you give the description again, just for people who've just joined in now? Yeah, so this is a, a creature that can be up to three meters long. They've got bodies that are long and flexible like a weasel. They are covered in scales like a snake. They've got legs like a turtle, eyes like mirrors, black spiked dorsal fins, and their bodies are covered in moss and river grass. It's the uh, the dorsal fins that's doing it for me. Because it's yeah, so definitely. iconic to Godzilla. So yep. for the last part of this episode, I think it'd be interesting to discuss uh, yokai in more recent culture, or more modern day culture. What are the um, most obvious places that we can see yokai in, um, let's say, Western uh, Western media? Well, anywhere you look today in uh, anime and video games you're going to see the influence of yokai. And I think it's because we're sort of undergoing a yokai renaissance or a yokai boom right now uh, in the last uh, 20 or so years. Uh, or particularly with, with video games, you're seeing a lot of um, you know, sort of historical fantasy style games where you play as a, a samurai running through castles or a knight running through castles and since so many video games are uh, Japanese in origin you're seeing that these Japanese game designers are looking into their own country's past and, and folklore and lifting creatures out of there 
uh, and placing them into these video games. So it's very interesting that you see a lot of uh, things that you might not even realize are Japanese yokai in even Western video games, just because of the, the tradition of video games there. For, for example? Uh, well, I guess one of the easiest examples would be in Mario, Super mm -hmm. Mario 3, you've got his uh, tanuki suit. Or, or raccoon Mario, as it's yeah. sometimes called in English, and uh, you know he gets the leaf and he turns into a stone statue and he can fly. Yeah, and that is just straight out of Japanese folklore, where you've got these animals called tanuki, which are they're a canine. Uh, they're sometimes called raccoon dogs in English, but I think the term tanuki is also catching on as just a direct import. Mm. Uh, but they're creatures who. Uh, Folklorically, they uh, they're very good shapeshifters. Um, they love alcohol. They love playing tricks on people. And what they do is they they can disguise themselves by putting something like a leaf on top of their head, and they can turn themselves into a human or or shapeshift into sort of anything. And so that's why when Mario picks up a leaf, he can turn into them. They were made very popular in uh, the film Pompoco. The yes, Studio Ghibli exactly. film, nineteen ninety four, which um, I thought was a great film because it's it's got the the environmental tone which is characteristic to Studio Ghibli films. Yep. Looking at the the battle between the animals in the forest, specifically the tanuki, against the um, I suppose the nineteen sixties population boom. <laughs> yep. basically well as of any urbanization just kind of aggressively expands and the the animals fight back, but it's yep. There's an amazing, I suppose, like 10-minute scene in uh, Pompoka when they have their own night parade of 100 yes. um, demons, and it's it's fantastic. And you've, you've even got the, um, coming down from the clouds, you've got those sort of wrathful deity like Buddhas fighting for a moment, and you've you've got the, the long-necked ladies, you've, um, the, the, there's just so many yokai tropes in there, isn't there? It's... Yeah, there, there really are, and, and that was, you know, a very conscious decision to uh, you know, for it's not just about uh, nature versus civilization. It's also about modernization versus traditional, uh, traditional things. So that's why the the you know the tanuki are trying to tell Japanese people, hey, don't forget about your history and your past. And so they're showing these creatures from folklore. Yes, we were doing a review a couple of um, months back, looking at the film. Um, it's got. A terribly long name godzilla mothra king Ghidorah, all monsters <laughs> all out attack yes. and um specifically in that film godzilla is a, a wrathful demon and he's a nasty piece of work in it but he's, he's attacking with all of the concentrated souls from hiroshima and nagasaki um, ah yes and he's, he's attacking the japanese public uh directly rather than america because he's He's angry that they've forgotten their own history and where they've come right. from, and it's um yeah it's it it's a Godzilla film. It's goofy, but the message behind it, as so often with these Godzilla films, the the message is stronger than the delivery. The delivery is often quite <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. But but that is definitely a a concept that's lifted straight out of folklore for sure. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think about things that got me into yokai. It was probably the video game on the PS2. It was Akami. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of people, uh, I think, a lot of people come to yokai from that game. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's beautiful artwork, and uh, mm. you know, very, very, I guess, uh, Japanese aesthetic to it, yes. the, the painterly style to it. And a lot of people just 
That's absolutely. Yeah, they they see that and they and they really want to know more about it. And and with a little mm. bit of research, you start to find yokai that looks similar to that. And you know that that sort of is a, a gateway into the the world of yokai. Yeah, it made me look up. Um, is it Tengu? Have I pronounced it right? Yeah. Um, and I knew nothing about them. They're, they're horrible yokai. <laughs> They really are, yeah. Yeah, um, just, was it, like, carrying babies up to trees and leaving them to cry and uh, raping yep. women and... Raping women, force-feeding people feces, all yeah, sorts the, of the, the, horrible things. They are not cricket. They are not cool people. Well, it's they've got a, an interesting journey because long, long ago, um, when Buddhism was making its way across Japan, Tengu were sort of set up as the, the enemies of Buddhism. Mm. So they... They truly are nasty creatures who purposefully go out of their ways to hunt nuns and monks and do horrible things to them, uh, particularly to the religious people. They were, they were really set up as these anti-religious monsters. Uh, but then about 500 years later, when you get into the, the Edo period uh, and you get into sort of um, medieval Japan, I guess, or, or early modern Japan, mm-hmm. they're sort of... Uh, looked back upon as these fantastic legendary warriors and there's all these myths and legends about great samurai who go off into the mountains and train with them and they learn sword swordsmanship and magic from them mm-hmm. so you know in the span of five or six hundred years their image has flip-flopped and they go from being these grovelly little gobliny demons who yeah who abuse and torture people to these great and wise, powerful mountain mystics and who ally themselves with, uh, with Buddhist mountain mystics as well. So they, they really have this interesting folkloric journey from, from villain to master. And is that because of the changing political tone yeah, over the um, half it, millennia? It's definitely due to, yeah, it's due to cultural and political changes in Japan. I mean, there's, so many to go into that you can't really easily sum it up but you you do see a lot of these major yokai like tengu for example and oni as well the the classical demons they they undergo pretty radical transformations as uh japan's society and and history evolve because if i've got the right one in your first book is it the night parade of 100 demons have i said it right that's right yeah in your first book um Oni, if I've got it right, you've got this sort of this red demon. It's literally eating yep. someone. <laughs> it's in is, a cave, yeah. and it's like, oh, it's eating a kid. Yep. Yeah. So in the in the old old days, Oni were truly monsters. I mean, they were invisible. They would make you sick. They would curse you. They would do horrible, horrible things. They were they were the true enemy of humanity. And then gradually they evolved into the form that you see them as this red or blue horned uh, demon looking creature and they carried big spiked iron clubs and they wore tiger skin loincloths and they would smash humans into bloody pulps with their clubs and basically they were the destructors of civilization and then later on you get stories about heroes who are being breastfed and nursed by demons like that and that's how they get their strength. And these days, Oni are almost cute mascots. I mean, you can see uh, local villages will have a very cartoon, cute Oni character as their as their local creature. So 
they've they've undergone a pretty radical transformation too but it's like having uh chibi versions of figures isn't yep. it it is kind yeah of, you know oh it's like when um oh, the japanese um vinyl company x plus released um they call it the the deaf real line, but it's it's like it's chibi versions of Shin Godzilla, and Shin Godzilla is a <laughs> horrible looking yeah, rendition. But when he's got the chibi look, he's just this grinning little idiot, and it's like, oh, he's a puppy now, <laughs> and it's like, why? I don't want to see that. But it, yeah. it's peculiar the contrast, like the jarring contrast. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and, yeah, absolutely. You look at these. Oni, who used to be one of the most horrible things, and, and people were genuinely afraid of these monsters. They were truly afraid of them. And today they've been, like you said, chibified. And yeah. and they are now these cute little dolls. Bless her. <laughs> um, to round off, just before we close the episode, it would be interesting if you could tell us about your three books specifically and about what your plans are for the future. Yeah, just starting absolutely. with your first book. So take us through that. What does that what does that offer our our listeners? So the, my first book is the Night Parade of One Hundred Demons, um, or Night Parade for short, and that is sort of your beginner general look at yokai. Uh, it contains a lot of the most famous yokai, as we mentioned, Oni, Tengu. It's got Kappa and and Kitsune and Tanuki and pretty much the the big names that. Uh, you're bound to hear of when you're first talking about Japanese folklore. It, I try to show a the wide range of folklore within that book. So you've got the scary, horrific monsters like Tengu and Oni, but you've also got really cute ones uh, that like to play tricks and uh, they they like games, they like shape shifting, they like magic. So it, it tries to show the whole wide scope, everything from the most horrible to the most adorable to try to give you a broad taste of of what japanese folklore looks like my second book is called the hour of meeting evil spirits and as you might guess by the name it's more focused on evil spirits uh so whereas the first book is sort of a a general look the hour of meeting evil spirits really gets deep into the the dark and scary side of uh, Japanese folklore. So you've got things like black magic rituals that are written in there. You've got a number of terrifying ghosts that are in there. Uh, and it, it tries to get to some of the, the, mo- the really, really gritty stuff. There's a section on hell and the underworld as well that goes into some detailed description of what happens to you after you die. It's not for the faint-hearted. Just, um... No, I would say it's it's not for the faint of heart. And it's it's more for the people who are really into the the really dark stuff. Any of my students from school currently listen to this podcast, um, content warning, if you go out and you look up <laughs> Matthew Meyer's second book and then run back to me and say, you got me to read horrible, horrible depictions of hell, I warned you. I warned you. It has nothing on medieval life, though. <laughs> and your third book, tell us about that. Now, that's recently come out. Yeah, it just came out this year. It's called The Book of the Hakutaku. And the theme is based on, it's another general look. So it has the, the wide scope of yokai from, from good to evil. But the, the main theme of that is yokai that have been imported from foreign cultures into Japanese. So I'd say about half or a little more than half of the yokai in that book 
originated in foreign countries and then were brought to Japan and, and Japanified. So they, they have become something uniquely Japanese, but they do have uh, the book in the book. I try to trace some of their origins back to their original countries like India or China. Uh, and the, the farthest one we get to is all the way in Zanzibar in Africa. And it's just amazing to think that uh, a legend from Zanzibar can make its way to Japan, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and become rooted as a part of the folklore. So having explained your three books there, um, if anyone is interested, where could they find them, please? Uh, you can find them if you go to yokai.com. There's a link Mm-hmm. Uh, and the links will go to Amazon. So my, Amazon is my primary retailer. So if you search for them on Amazon, you'll find them there. But you can also just go straight to yokai.com and click on the links. And uh, that, that's yokai spelled Y-O-K-A-I dot com. Yokai dot com. Yeah, I, I found your books on Amazon. Um, I know that they're all available in paperback. And during the Patreon, you had them available in hardback, didn't you? Yeah, I do make hardbacks only during the uh, the Kickstarter campaign, sort of as a special... Thank you to the to the backers who are yeah. really dedicated in making these projects go forward. So it's sort of like a, a collector's item that's available uh, during Kickstarter mm. campaigns. Absolutely. So what can we expect from um, Matthew Meyer in the coming years? What's your ambition with Yokai.com? Well, I am working on a fourth book right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book and Yokai.com are all being produced... Uh, thanks to Patreon backers. So I do have an ongoing Patreon. Uh, you can also find the link to that on yokai.com. And the Patreon is a really good sort of behind-the-scenes look into both yokai.com and the direction that the next book is going. So I talk, not only do I share the yokai with, with backers on the Patreon, but I talk about my plans for the next book. I also do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about uh diving into these yokai which yokai i'm choosing next why i'm choosing those yokai some of the translations that don't end up making it in the final book or onto the website so it's really interesting for people who are yokai maniacs and really want to uh get into more of the stuff that that is sort of ephemeral and doesn't really make for good reading on a website but is still fun discussion outside of the fact and a lot of people, they really want to get a, their favorite yokai illustrated and put up on yokai.com. Yes. And so I, I also offer that as sort of a uh, a reward to Patreon members. If, if you're in the Patreon, you can request a yokai, and I'll usually do it, do it in the following month. So uh, The turnaround has been pretty quick, I can vouch for. Yeah, that. I try to do them as quickly as possible. I know that not everyone can you know be a patron forever, so no. try to make sure that, that while, they're, while they're there, they can get their money's worth. Absolutely, but yeah. it's for me, it's really rewarding to have fans who are, they're really interested in the development of the website and, and they're really passionate. I really love having conversations with, with people via yes. Patreon and talking about what yokai they want to see more of or answering their questions. Or It's really wonderful to have sort of that, that uh, miniature community that, that is really mm. uh, involved and dedicated into helping this project continue. Fantastic. Uh, just to finish off, one of the things that we've always done in our episodes, Matthew, is we have what we call If Nothing Else. So we've got one minute each, roughly. And if nothing else, say our listeners just come to the episode and they're not quite sure where to go, we signpost them to something which we found really interesting. So I'm, I'm going to start us off. If nothing else, 
if you've enjoyed listening to this um, podcast about yokai specifically, check out the film. It was in 1968 by the now shut down studio Dai, and the film is called Yokai Monsters, and that's 100 monsters. Yokai Monsters, 100 monsters. It's um. <sighs> It's a shit fest, I'll be honest. It's a mess of a film. It's, but it's, it's charming. It's, have you seen it, Matthew? Uh, you know what? That, that and the, uh, the other two movies in that series. Spook the, the Warfare. Trilogy. And, yeah. yeah, I can't remember the third one. What do you there's, think of them? There's the, oh, those are my favorite yokai movies of Aren't all they time. great? I, I adore those movies. Yeah, they are, they're dated, the acting, Absolutely. <laughs> as you'd expect from the 1960s. I mean, you know, don't, don't think that I'm hating on Dai just because it's not Toho. No, no, Toho 1960s <laughs> was just as camp, if not worse at times. But uh, rather than spoiling it for you, it's got, you know, little to no CGI, but it's got puppets, it's got people yeah. in Yoka suits. Yokai in rubber suits, puppets, yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's, and- it's really, really hammy acting. It's yeah. it's wonderful. It's it's so so good. But it's actually quite sinister. The 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 last ten minutes when they have the I suppose what would be the night parade of demons and they torment the villagers. It's quite frightening. It's amazing how just with people in suits and puppets and in this case specifically shadows, you can create a very frightening scene that. It's, you know, it's been reattempted since, I know, Takashi Mike. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Is it Takashi Mike? How, how do I Takashi say Mike. Mike, yeah. He did um, his own interpretation of yokai. It was, I think, yokai, yokai wars in the early the great 1000s. yokai war, yeah. Yeah, and it's, yep. it's good fun, but it, it's, yeah. it's no yokai monsters from the 1960s. There's just something yeah. about the simple hamminess. I anyway. agree with, I agree completely with that. And, and I would add, too, that... um. Not only are, well, the reason maybe that those are my three favorite yokai films is I think those are the, also the most authentically, or the most authentic to Japanese folklore out of all of the grand universe of yokai in pop culture. Yes. And I say that even with, um, you know, with Pompoko being a wonderful movie and with the, the great yokai war having much higher production value, uh, what you see recently in this sort of modern yokai renaissance, as I mentioned earlier, is that people are using yokai as a basis to sort of sculpt their own new original stories. And that's wonderful. It's great. But it also means that they're telling a modern story, but they're, they're sort of using yokai as the foundation. And that, I don't, you know, I I would never say that there's anything wrong with that, but I, I'm more of a fan of the older folklore. So when you see these, the 1960s movies, they're so much more true to the folklore and and the campiness and they're not trying to uh invent a new mythology or add their own new creations uh you know the the great yokai war has a has an invented villain who is very very modern very very 20th century but the the uh great yokai war they're they're pretty true and authentic to what people thought yokai looked like and acted like they do have their own unique yokai uh unique to that movie as well so i can't say that they're they're truly 100% authentic but i feel like the uh the mood and the atmosphere there is is much more real hmm. if nothing else Matthew Meyer um what would you recommend our listeners go and sort of search out 
for yokai culture well since you've already beat me with the yokai <laughs> monsters movies uh, i would say if nothing else you want to watch kwaidan um it's available on dvd in the criterion collection so probably if you go to your local library they'll have it on dvd uh but you can find it in any movie store as well uh kwaidan is such a masterpiece of Japanese storytelling, horror storytelling, and theatrical storytelling, and it has a couple yokai stories in there as well. So you'll have a wonderful experience, even if you don't know anything about yokai. And then if you come back to yokai.com later and start browsing around, you'll begin to see some of the, the roots that Kwaidan built from. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Kaiju Curry House with myself, Alex, and with Matthew Meyer, the Yokai Guy. I'm signing off now. It's been a pleasure talking to you all. Thank you. And thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Kaiju Curry House is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and produced by UK Kaiju with music by Flying Killer Robots. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe at heroespodcast.com or on the various podcast services such as Apple iTunes, Google Play, or just about any podcast app. If you want to get involved with the show, please tweet us at UKKaiju, and check out ukkaiju.com for the latest news, events, and kaiju thoughts from all of us. Thanks for listening. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxwain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com.